Welcome to Stories from the Center of the Universe, the podcast about the human experience. Tommy Dew, welcome to the Center of the Universe. Thank you. The black hole. Did you know that uh, you were going to be in the Center of the Universe tonight? (laughs) Well, you know... It's always the center of the universe wherever I stand. I thought that was the deal. I think that's the deal for me, too. It's especially strong in this podcast because the name is uh, Stories from the Center of the Universe. Uh, but yeah, we're, we're you're definitely in the center of my universe, and uh, I'm glad to stand in your center of the universe. I, I guess we should start with the, the weird story of how you and I connected. Uh, you are a prolific tour guide in Charleston, and I was down in Charleston, well, just outside at Folly Beach. And the army buddy of mine texted me, he goes, you've got to get this guy on your podcast. And you were on Stories Across America podcast. And I wasn't sure if he was talking about you as the guest or or the effectively the narrator or, or historian or the guy that actually hosts that podcast. And so we clarified that. And I said, oh, my gosh, I went to high school with a guy named Tommy Dew. Tommy's a couple years older, older than me. He probably doesn't remember me, but I remember him. And I called you. And sure enough, you're the, you and I went to high school together. Yeah, small world. And yeah, I remember that friend of yours, the the army guy, we had a good, good couple hours together and we see the world through the same lens. So that was good. And yeah. His name is like that on the tour, you know, because I've been doing it for a long time and you have certain angles that you like to talk about certain themes that you develop. And when it resonates with somebody, it's nice. It's rewarding. Yeah, it's super nice. So I guess we should say his name, Brett McCrate, uh, connected us. He's a, he's a good guy. He's a patriot, and um, I was glad to serve with him. Uh, so I we caught up some. We, we spoke for about 20 minutes, I guess, a couple weeks ago. But uh, this is – you've been doing the tour guide thing for about 28 years, and we will certainly talk about uh, your experiences as a tour guide, uh, history of Charleston. I'd love to get into uh, however deeply and broadly you want to go there. But I also want to talk about uh, other aspects of your life. I was reminded by uh, the article in the Charleston Mercury uh, today that you were a uh, a, a fairly well-known musician. I was. We played really hard. So when I was at St. Christopher's back in Richmond, where we graduated high school, I was in bands. I was in the Glee Club. I was in Ampersand, which was the drama department. Pretty much from the time I was in kindergarten at St. Christopher's, I was on the stage. My mom, fair to say, a bit of a stage mom. She always kind of put me out there. And it was it just suited me. And so when I got to college, I started a band called Tommy Salami and the Cold Cuts. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, yeah, we played. We played all the frat parties and you know, the bars that would have us. And we built a nice little following. And then we got a little more serious and we took on some additional players and became the archetypes. Yeah. And, the, and you guys toured up and down the East coast, right. For a, for a few years. We did. We played a lot. It did. I was playing two to five nights a week for a few years there and made a living playing rock and roll. And it was awesome. It's, you know, it's one of those things I wake up every morning. I'm a musician in my heart of hearts. And so I wake up every morning, you know, just, wondering when am I going to get to play again? You know, I kind of think about that a lot. I have a band in my house and I'm in a couple of little projects and I've got guys that cycle through and the band that I played so much with the archetypes, we still get together. 
but not as much as what I would like. It's hard. You know, we're getting old. We did. I will say this since it comes up. Uh, we just got nominated to the Low Country Music Hall of Fame. So we're going to be inducted into the Charleston Music Hall of Fame this year. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah, I'm tickled. I you know, wasn't expecting it and then just thrilled. You know, it's great to be recognized that way. And you guys uh, all went to College of Charleston or at least you either went to the college or you're from that area? Pretty much, yeah. A few very minor exceptions, but we're all living here. And, uh, and yeah, and we all kind of had music backgrounds. We came at it from different directions, but we were an alternative rock band. Back there, back then in the late 80s, it was described as college rock, the kind of stuff that you'd find on college radio stations. Yeah, slight precursor to the, uh, I guess, Allison Chains, Nirvana, those guys. That's right. We were pre-grunge. But we had a an edge to us. We were, you know, I think maybe cow punk would be a good way to describe. Mm-hmm. We had a little bit of a, a new wave, but a, a country punk rock edge to us, and it was performance based. Now, I'm a singer, but I'm really a front man, and so we got we got pretty pretty crazy there. We had some huge decadent shows. So when you say front man, you were there to sing, but you were there also to entertain beyond your vocals. 100%. Yeah, I'm, I was a theater major, fine arts major. I consider myself a performance artist. I think, you know, not to sound obnoxious, but that's sort of the way I looked at myself as a performance artist. and But very musical, you know, the music was, the melody was very important to me. I like pop songs. You know, I don't like, I'm, I, jam bands are fine. But they get on my nerves because I think they're indulgent. I like a band that writes a song that's two to three minutes long. That's got it's well structured. It's got a beginning, a middle, and an end. It, whereas jam bands, people just noodle and they try to show off their virtuosity, and I think it's indulgent. Yeah, I, I start to fall asleep after five minutes of a jam band doing their their jamming on one riff or one song. Yeah, yeah. it wears me out. I like well constructed pop songs. I mean, if it's a really, really good song, I can hang for four minutes, but I, I'm with the sweet spots around two to three. Yeah, my attention span is just limited. You know, I just <laughs> mix it up. All right, so help me understand, when you say decadent shows, g- give me an idea of what you mean by decadent. Well, I sang in the nude one time. <laughs> <laughs> how many How many people were in, in the crowd? Uh, 500, maybe. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Was that a spur of the moment thing, or did you plan? Yeah, that? It was spur of the moment. Oh my gosh, Tommy, I could never do that in a million years. I couldn't do it in yeah. front of people. Yes, and you know, shrinkage was a problem, but you know, I was it was it just was what it was. You know, we were just laying it out there, and uh, anyway, it was not planned. And it's you know, you do that one time. Um, I, one really funny story is we were playing, and you know, we used to girls used to throw their bras up on stage. It was just kind of a thing. And I'd sing with bras draped from a mic stand, which was always great, you know, and, uh, and this one girl, she got on the stage and she was, she took her top off. And so she was naked from the waist up gyrating with me. And the manager of the bar was terrified because he thought the bar was going to shut down. He was convinced that, that, cops are going to come and so it was this beautiful scene i had the girl's left hand holding her 
and he had her right hand and he was trying to drag her off the stage. And so it was this tug of war with this nude girl on the stage and her, her breasts were just swaying back and forth and the crowd was going insane. And so and that was just, you know, it was beautiful. It's just exactly what you want as a, you know, as a rock band, you know, those right. types of moments. And then I come to find out she was a sailor. She was on the university of Connecticut sailing team and they had a regatta at the college of Charleston earlier in the day. And she had been disqualified from the race for sailing in the nude. And so <laughs> I thought I had inspired her to go topless when in fact it was just her MO. She that was crestfallen. She just enjoyed being nude. It sounds like <laughs> any opportunity. <laughs> See, I'm sailing. Might as well be nude. Oh, but a rock show might as well be nude. Oh man. Oh Lord. Hey, so you're saying two to five days a week. Were you in college doing two to five days or was it just after? Uh, yeah, you know, at the end of college. And, you know, it took me five years to graduate. So I went to an all-boys school and I graduated with 73 boys. And I showed up at the College of Charleston in 1985. And I tell people I left my parents back in Richmond. I got in a car and drove down 95 and I pulled in to Charleston sight unseen. And the college of Charleston was four to one girls. And so I was just thrust into this situation. I'd never really gone to school with girls and I was terrified actually. It was, you know, it was just overwhelming. And I, I had two freshman years, my fall of the, my first year, I got three F's and a D. So I get home from college after the fall semester and I'm, I'm sporting a 0.25 <laughs> and my dad comes in to, he gets home from work and he, you know, he's picked the mail up in the mailbox and he comes into the den. It's probably, you know, December 15th and I'm out of school for Christmas and he comes into the, into the den and he's got mail in his hand and I'm watching TV and he looks at me and he goes, what the fuck is this? <laughs> and he goes, I didn't send you to college <laughs> to make three F's and a D. So anyway, my parents were sweet and cool, sent me back and I got through it. I graduated in five years and uh, you know, I consider that to be a, a bit of a miracle. You know, I basically had no credits that transferred after the freshman year, and, but I did graduate and I did okay and had an awesome time. College Charleston was just, it was the most unbelievable place to go to school just to answer the question. So I'll never forget this. I dug such a deep hole in college. I had to have a two five in my major to graduate in a, I'm, I'm sorry, three Oh in my major and a two five overall. And I had an art history exam my senior year and I'd already sent invitations out to the parents for the graduation ceremony. So I had a pack of people coming down from Richmond to see me graduate. And I had to get a 3-0 on my art exam to get a 3-0 in the class to, to get a 3-0 in my major. And I'm on the stage at two in the morning singing an encore and it was a sold out show. It, we probably did 900 people that night mm. and it was a hot, sweaty mess. And I'm singing 
sympathy for the devil at 2 a.m. And I hadn't studied for the exam and it was 9 a.m. the next morning. So I'm up there on the stage singing my guts out going, I've got to get off the stage. I got to get off the stage. And I went home and I slept for about two hours, set my alarm and just read through my notes and I ended up getting a three Oh on the exam and uh, I pulled it out of my arse. And, oh, but it was down God. to that. It was down to that. It, it, you know, I'm on stage without having studied for the exam. And, and I, it was 9 a.m. the next morning. And it's just one of those moments in your life where you go, it could have gone either way. Yeah, my gosh. You, you, I, I love your phrasing. You, you started college sporting a 0.25 and then you ended it the, the way you just described. I mean, that's, I, that's the way to come in and, and I guess the way to leave. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, my, my parents, they were pretty laid back. They were definitely not helicopter parents. And they just said, you know, sink or swim, son, make it happen. I think that's the way to parent. I really do. Well, I do too. And I, I just the fact that I went to college not having ever visited the school. I just showed up. That's pretty outrageous. You never see that today. How did you pick College of Charleston? I had two friends from Richmond that were going to the College of Charleston, one that went to St. Chris and one that went to Trinity. And they convinced me that's where I needed to go. And the guidance counselor at St. Christopher's was Mr. Herzog, who was also the athletic director. And he was looking at my grades and he was like, you're not getting into UVA. You're not getting into Washington and Lee. You need to go to Hamden, Sydney or VMI. That's where you'll go, son. And I was like, I'm not going to Hampton, Sydney or VMI. It's so all just, dudes back then. Right? Yeah, I mean, I'd already been to all-boys school forever, so I needed right. to see some girls. It took me about a year to adjust to that. So four-to-one ratio, did you know it was a four-to-one ratio before you went down there? You heard stories, you know, and you will hear that it was 12-to-1. It was never 12-to-1. That's bull. But it was four to one for sure. And it's now 65, 35 girl over guy. So there's an old saying, the boys marry up at the College of Charleston. <laughs> I mean, it's just simple math, right? Simple math. <laughs> one of our great rituals. And I mean, it's kind of silly, but we used to sit out at sorority row on bid day. And my senior year, we calculated the, we knew that there were 1600 freshman girls going through rush. And we set up huge bourbon drinks and lawn chairs and sat on the grass next to the sorority houses. And well over a thousand freshman girls came screaming around the corner, going to their houses. And, um, and then all the sorority sisters were in the houses. And so it was just every year we would do that. We made a point to sit on the corner to watch all the new recruits, all the new co-eds coming through with big cocktails and then, you know, and then let the games begin. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's a fun time, man. Yeah. It was a good times. Yeah. It's yeah, good being married, having kids, but that, those are good times too. Yeah. Yeah. I got it out of my system. I've been yeah. married 29 years and my wife is incredible. I'm so fortunate. She was, she's put up with my ass for this long. Well, I, so I understand it's, one point when you were in uh, the archetypes or maybe before the archetypes, you were sporting a, uh, a Mohawk. Did, did I had, you a, Mohawk. Mohawk? I had a Mohawk in high school. That's right. You did. Yeah. But did you I, keep it the whole no, time? No, I, I let it grow in. I, I was so stupid, but 
it was 1983. My parents went to Spain for two weeks and this, they just, they basically had not left the airport in Richmond. And I went to the barber and got a Mohawk thinking it would be grown in by the time they returned. And of course it wasn't. <laughs> well, that you were what a sophomore then I was a sophomore. Yeah. Yeah. So we were, we thought we were punk rock kids. You know, we used to get on the VCU and hang out downtown all the time. I had well, a fake was, ID. I mean, VCU was where it was at back when we were in high school, right? Yeah, you, I would. I, I took apart my St. Christopher's High School ID, ID, cut the date out, glued a new date in, and I could use that to get into the bars downtown in 1983. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. That's before anybody cared. Yeah, but they nobody cared back then for sure. Uh, were, were you kind of a big man on campus at Charleston? Did everybody know who you were? Or a lot of people know? Well, it's a small school. It was 3,200 kids when I got there. It, I graduated in five years, and it was 7,000 when I graduated. So mm. it actually more than doubled in the five years I was there. Wow. But it's, it is for sure. Everybody knew everybody. It was, it was awesome. It was just this sweet, laid-back place. It was – I describe it as – it felt like the Bahamas. It was it had this Bahamian vibe mm. to it. But Caribbean. Did you still have that? No, well, a little bit, but it's been spit shined and sanitized. Ah, yeah. Well, that's why uh, you you do what you do, right? So make sure it's not sanitized in a way that's uh, inaccurate. Right, right. So that's kind of I did move from one stage to another. There's no doubt that what I do for a living is just a continuation of my music career, just a, just a different format. Not not as much uh, decadence these days. Well, it's not as decadent, but, it, you know, it, I I don't know if it's any less controversial, right? Because when you start talking about subjects that make people squeamish, you never know what the reaction is going to be because people are so sensitive today. Yeah, it's weird. I think I get more negative feedback on my tour sometimes than, than when I sang Naked. Mm. And I'm being funny, but not, you know, because you get, you get these crazy people these just crazy people who are so high strung who don't understand how the world was formed. They, you know, they don't have no sense of history. The education system has completely failed them and they are misguided. They, they're, they're dealing with an alternate set of facts that are not facts and they lead, you know, it's feelings over facts. That just seems to be the theme today. Yeah, it'll cycle uh, the other way eventually. But yeah, it's. A I do think it is already cycling back. I think I think I noticed it on tour. That I, I get people every day. People are just bitching and moaning about how the world is going to hell in a handbasket. And you know, ninety nine out of a hundred seem to really enjoy my tour, and I'm often complimented. You know, people say thank you for being frank. Thank you for not mincing words. Thank you for doing what you do and not cowering, you know? And so that's good. That that's, that bolsters you. Yeah. Hey, Tommy, let's back up to uh, when you were a kid. Did you spend your entire childhood in Hanover County? Like, No, I lived in the city. Um, I lived in Westover Hills by the Nickel Bridge. Mm -hmm. 
Caledonia Road. So my parents, we lived there until I was 12. And then I moved out to Old Church, out Eastern Hanover, almost at the New Kent line. Was that a big adjustment for you? You didn't change schools, but I did actually. I left St. Chris for seventh and eighth grade. So I was K through six at St. Chris. My parents moved to the country. The house we lived in was 30 miles exactly from St. Christopher's. And so they were not prepared to make that commute. They thought they wanted to try the schools out there. And so I went to Battlefield Park for seventh grade. And then I went to Stonewall Jackson Junior High for eighth grade. And it was a great experience, I, but, you know, I, I didn't have to study. It was, I was way ahead of the, of the other kids. And, um, and my parents saw that immediately. And so they sent me back to St. Christopher's for high school. So I did nine through 12 at St. Chris. Yeah, that, that was the way to do it. I was K through seven uh, in Hanover County Public Schools, the other side of the county, uh, went to Liberty um, and, and the elementary school there. And, I went to say Christopher's man, and it was culture shock, not just the single sex education thing, but uh, I had three or four hours of homework five nights a week. My, my public school buddies couldn't come anywhere near that. They weren't doing anything. Yeah. I'm like, intellectually, I get why my parents sent me here, but man, I would much rather have no home, homework and be in class with girls. No, for sure. Yeah, it's, 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 but you, you know, you reap what you sow. And so I still get mileage out of it. I, when I, write something. I still think about Ron Smith, my English teacher at St. Christopher's. I think would Mr. Smith approve of this sentence? Yeah. I omitted needless words. Have I gotten to the heart of the matter? Just, you know, they, they beat you up and, you know, it stays with you. Yeah. They were definitely tough graders, man. I, I remember my freshman year, I got uh, like a one point something on some paper and I'm like, what, what is happening? I'm supposed to be a 3.0 and higher kind of kid. You can't give me a 1.6 or whatever it was. And it certainly got my attention. Yeah. And we, my grade, I had a really smart class. I mean, we had some brilliant guys in my grade. Just, it just seemed, seemed to come effortlessly. Yeah. You, you're good buddies with uh, Rich Walker to this day. Um, and Rich is a, a very bright guy. I think I told you, I used to work uh, for and with Rich at Capital One. Really nice guy, really bright guy, um, kind of guy you want on your side. Who, who else did you hang out with back in the, your uh, life? Well, and let me just say, Rich, I did talk to him, and he was so complimentary of you. He said that you saved his ass. He said he got he got put in charge of a new division at Capital One, and that call center, you ran the call center, yeah. and, and he had no idea what he was doing. And he said he basically let you run the show, and he said he tried to stay out of your shorts. Because <laughs> you were so good at what you did, and he was—he was so complimentary. I just got to tell you, he, th- he was so thankful. He said that you absolutely saved him. No, but I appreciate I, that. I—I I appreciated his management style. Like he—he he knew I knew my stuff, and he let me do it. I, yeah, I definitely yeah. appreciated it. Yeah, Rich was brilliant. Um, you know, the guy that my, my best friend really, Richie was certainly one of my best friends, and then a good Jay Tobler, and Jay mm-hmm. went to Yale. And I, we were in Ron Smith's English class together and he wrote the most beautiful papers and Ron would pull the paper out and read it to the class. And like, he killed it. He nailed it. And, you know, he didn't, it, it was just seamless all the time for Jay. Um, he ended up dying. You know, he, he was, uh, he died of leukemia. Oh. But he was, he was one of those guys that just, he just, he got it. Will Nelson was another one. I don't know if you knew Will, but he went to Yale also and he, he was a physics guy. He, he apparently is studying black holes for the U.S. government. He 
in some secret lab somewhere. I'm being funny, but you know, he, that, that was what, that is what he does. He's and any number of other, other folks. Kobler, uh, I remember was a very bright guy and he was, I, th I think by the time he was in his senior year, he could write as well as any of the teachers there. Yeah. No, I think he was the best writer in our grade. And out of our grade, a bunch of really smart guys. Richie was smart as hell. Richie was a math guy. He was a math major at UVA. I'll never forget that um, Richie, Will Nelson, Neil Switz, Jay Gowdy. I'm trying to think who else. That was probably it. They were on the math team. And the St. Christopher's math team went to this tournament, statewide tournament, and they did these really incredible math problems, you know, and they were the only team that finished the test. Mm. And they finished it like in way under the allotted time. And, that, you know, you have dozens of high schools sending their best and brightest to this math tournament. And the St. Chris math team won the damn thing and no other team could answer the question. Yes, some of that, a lot of that is the, who the kids were, but some of that's the teachers at St. Christopher's too, man. There were some brilliant math brains there. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, what was his name? Um, who was the the physics guy? Um, Jim Jim Boyd. Jim Boyd. Yeah, yeah, Mr. Yeah. Boyd. Legend. I I took physics class from him, and uh, I I couldn't follow half of what he was saying. He was a good teacher. He did a nice job. I just it was just way too complicated. All right, so uh, I will just tell you my favorite guy from your class, um, and maybe I'm having a memory problem, but I, I think my favorite was Jim McVeigh. I, I, I really yeah, Jim is awesome. Jim and I went all the way through together. He's salt of the earth, and his dad, Mister McVeigh, was the headmaster forever. George and you know, Muggsy love Mister McVeigh. He was he was smart as hell. He he could read me. He knew. He called my bullshit out instantly every time. You know, you couldn't get away with anything. He Nothing. saw right through, right through your shenanigans every single time. And help hold you accountable, which is what you know. I, you know, looking back on it, you know, I just love that. At the time, it was awful because you couldn't get away with anything. But you realize now that that accountability is what we need. It's what our society lacks, and I'm the better for it. Yeah, that accountability matters, and if you if you have that consistently in your life, you're absolutely better off for it. I'll tell you one of my memories of McVeigh, nothing specific, but he had a twinkle in his eye. He gave you the uh, sideways grin from time to time. And, and that oh, hell yeah. Today. Hell yeah. Yeah, no, he was he had a great sense of humor, and, and he was a man's man, you know, it, 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 but but really smart, you know, just and, – and he, he was tough, I, but I, I appreciate that so much now. Yeah, when you're going through it, maybe you don't appreciate it so much. Uh, but, yeah, definitely when you're in our 50s like we are, uh, you certainly appreciate it. All right, so you you didn't – did you major in poli sci, you were telling me? I majored in fine arts. Fine arts. That is an interdisciplinary degree. So I took all sorts of music and theater and art history classes, just anything to do with the world of art. It's an interdisciplinary degree. Yeah, I, I didn't know how art history fell uh, at College of Charleston. I, um, political science doesn't make any sense. I apologize for even bringing that up. But the, the arts makes a ton of sense. You, it sounds like you, I'm guessing you loved most of your classes. Yeah, just, just a, a, 
it was not academically rigorous. I just gravitated to courses that I liked. And I was in the fine arts department all the time. You know, I wrote a play. I uh, made a movie. I just, you know, I directed a play. Just did all sorts of stuff in that realm. Took a bunch of vocal classes, piano classes. Just, you know, lived in that world. It was kind of immersive. And enjoyed the, the heck out of it. And have you always stayed in that world? Well, I've always had one foot in it. You know, our band, we had a good following. We had a big following there for a long time. And uh, it's funny, I, I'm I'm in that world because of that. I, I can't go to the grocery store without somebody saying, archetypes, <laughs> Tommy Salami. You know, my kids, it drives them crazy ever since they were born. It's like, dad. That's pretty cool, man. No, I've gotten so much mileage out of it. It's ridiculous. It's just silly how, you know, when you do something, I think that's, you know, when you get up on stage, people are so afraid of putting themselves out there. And, you know, they say that public speaking is, for the majority of people, their greatest fear. You know, some people will say they fear public speaking more than death. And I'm just the opposite. I love it. I love being on stage. I've always enjoyed it. I've been, been trained to do that really from the time I could walk by my mom. And so just doing something like that that differentiates you, it's not a big deal for me to do that, but it, it's um, it it's something that most people aren't comfortable doing. And so it just it does can't, it cannot but make you stand out. And we were good, you know. The, the other thing about the band is we practiced all the time. I mean, we, we worked so hard at our craft. We were our biggest uh, critics. I mean, we, we would have huge shows, you know, do a thousand people and come off the stage going, that could have gone better. We, we, we mm. screwed up the bridge on that song. We missed, we missed that change. And nobody in the audience has any idea, but we certainly knew. Yeah. So I think, you know, a big part of it is, is knowing, having high expectations for yourself and holding yourself accountable. And, uh, and we, we worked really hard and I listened to old recordings of ourselves because it's been a long time, you know, it's been 30 years and you listen to those things and you go, good Lord, we were tight. We were tight as shit. And, and kind of looking back on it, man, we were actually pretty good. You know, you, you didn't always realize it at the time. So, so you're touring up and down the East Coast for several years. Um, well, that's and that's kind of strong. We did tour up and down, but we were really a South Carolina band. But we played around the Southeast, you know. And but we, it would be fair to say that like around 1990, Hootie and the Blowfish and the Archetypes were the two biggest bands in the state of South Carolina in terms of drawing crowds. And uh, we were the big Charleston band where they were the, they were the big Columbia band. Right. And Columbia and Charleston are what? A couple hours apart. Yeah. hundred miles. Yeah. Uh, so you were really big in your own backyard in your uh, home state there. Uh, when did you know it wasn't going to work or asked a different way? How close did you get to it? I thought we were close. We, we cut two albums and we had some showcases and, we had a really great following. We had a loyal following and, you know, we did dream of making it, but we had personality problems. 
you know, there's always ego in bands. We had five guys in the band plus a manager. We had a 15 passenger van with a trailer on the back and we're cruising around and it's just a hard life and you want to kill each other. Ultimately, you know, you just get so tired of each other and you have creative differences and, you know, we were immature, you know, we're 21, 22, 23 years old and it was a great life, but we got burned out. And I do regret not being more malleable. Like, you know, I just think we had, personality conflicts and i wish we could have found a way to get along better because we essentially committed suicide at our zenith you know we were we were crushing it and we just said screw this i, I really don't want to play with you anymore i'm tired of playing with you wow and, and that you know, we just said that's it and but the other side of it is you know i was uh, i was just kind of ready i knew i wouldn't i, I, I don't know i just uh thought I was going to take another path and like, I just, it was time to do something different. And I always sort of thought I'd come back to it. I could come back to it if I wanted to just needed a break. And then yeah. once you, once you take that break, it is kind of hard to rekindle. It's, it's, um, it's, it's all, it's an all or nothing experience when you're, when you're in that performance world. I mean, it is immersive and you live and breathe it. We're writing songs constantly just on top of each other all the time and just trying to get better all the time. And as soon as you step, take your foot off the gas, it's, it's kind of hard to get it back up to speed. Yeah. It's almost like doing something physical and you sit down for 10 minutes. It's hard to get back up to that physical thing again. Yeah. Yeah. And I yeah. do regret it. It's probably my great regret. And, you know, in life, I do wish we'd given it a little bit more time and I, and I wish that we'd all been a little bit easier to get along with, you know, I think we were immature. Well, I mean, look, I, I've said this a bunch on this podcast. Uh, the, the male brain doesn't fully form until you turn 25 or so. And you guys have been around each other a lot before you guys started turning 25. Uh, yeah. yeah, it's it's amazing. You guys were together as long as you were, actually. Yeah, and we love each other. We, 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 we I'm crazy about all of my bandmates. And, um, and when we see each other, you know, they're my brothers. You know, it's just awesome. We went through some stuff together and it's just – just like, I mean, you were in the service, right? You know, those guys that you went to boot camp with and that you were stationed with, there's a bond there that's unlike any other. Yeah, that's the best part of the experience. It's no question. Yeah. Um, so are the original five still around? You guys still uh, get together and play every once in a while? Yeah, so we have this induction ceremony coming up this fall. And so we've been chatting. We're going to get together and we're going to start practicing and get ready to do a gig just a little reunion gig we'll send something out to our friends and hopefully we'll get some folks to come down and have some fun no no uh mohawks and you'll be clothed this time yeah and, and no full frontal nudity either <laughs> oh man what would you say 500 people That's... yeah probably something like that <laughs> all right so i, I want to go back to being on stage uh is not anxiety ridden for you it's zero stress it sounds like and you said your mom had you in that environment from the time you could walk if she hadn't had you in that environment do you think you naturally come by being comfortable on stage like that or is it yeah probably, a combination it's, 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 i think I, I have that gene there's no doubt in my mind i have that gene i am naturally musical and and i've got my mother plays piano by ear she can dance 
really well. And so I just, I do have that intuitive ability. I, it's part of me. She culti- helped to cultivate that. And I think St. Christopher's helped to cultivate that because, you know, we had all the way through, there were opportunities to be on the stage and, you know, I took every advantage. I was in every play every year, all the way through. And there were they always at St. Catharines? Well, in the upper school, the ampersand, McVeigh Theater was at St. Catharines. But in, yeah. in the lower school, we had our own auditorium. Yeah. Okay. And, you know, I just gravitated to it. Now, one funny thing that popped, I was a Tallheimer's runway model at the age of three. Just, <laughs> and so I'm being serious. My mother put me in freaking clothes and stuck me out on the Tallheimer's fashion show runway That's when I was a little more. So you were a model at one point, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, so you were you were a music guy. You were a theater guy. At St. Christopher's, at least, I think, what, 8th through 12th grade, we had to play a sport every season. We had to do something physical. Yeah, yeah. You had, you had mandatory athletics, 5, 3.30 to 5.30 every day. And so I played JV football. Um, but I, I stepped away for the 7th and 8th grade. I was a really good baseball player, and uh, I I did not make the the JV baseball team in my ninth grade year. Mm. My dad was so mad; he was like, "God damn it!" Because there was because the eighth grade the bulldog team had a list, and the eighth grade coach gave the ninth grade coach who was new to the school the list, and that's the guy, the kids that made the team, and wow. he had no idea who I was. So anyway, I had sort of this uneventful athletic career. Um, but I was always a, you know, I always enjoyed athletes. I played lacrosse, baseball. I was a wrestler a little bit, um, and and ended up. By the time I was in high school, you could take athletics off if you were in ampersand. Uh-huh. So all four years of high school, I would miss one section of mandatory athletics because I was up at St. Catharines in the theater. So you you didn't have a. F- uh, an always on all male education. Sounds like you had you had at least one season where you were with the uh, young ladies at St. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. It's not a bad deal. I, I, I never picked that road. I was, I was doing meat hit things and never really left. Well, you're a big boy. I'm not a small guy. Yeah. Not a small guy. Yeah. yeah they, they have the advantages when you're in high school, maybe not so much when you're in your fifties. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So let, let's talk about how you found uh, Charleston tours. What led you to, to doing that? Well, it was out of desperation a little bit. My, I was newly married. My band had broken up. I got married in 1994 and my band had broken up and then restarted a little bit. I had opened a bar. I owned a bar for a little while. Um, that didn't work out and I needed a job. And so I started giving carriage tours. I did that for one year and I loved it. And I then opened my walking tour business. So I gave carriage tours in downtown all of 1996 and then started this business in January of 97. And it suited me, you know, I, I, it, it, fit my personality. I was comfortable talking, but I also, I've I've always been opinionated and I've always, I don't know. I think I've been kind of raw and unfiltered and, and I found that that worked, you know, people wanted to hear 
what you had to say and don't, you know, don't mince words. Just say what you think and let the chips fall. So it kind of suited me. And I think the other thing is I'm a Southern guy and my family's Southern. And the history of Charleston is it's an American history, but it's a, from the Southern perspective. And there's so much history here. And it's just an incredible place to discuss how the South evolved, why it evolved differently than the rest of America. And so that's always been an angle for me, you know, going to St. Christopher's Lee's and Jackson's and, you know, gray for the Confederacy and red for the blood that she shed, you know, as a Southern boy growing up in Richmond, the capital of Confederacy, where I grew up in Eastern Hanover, the seven days battles, my, you know, my family farm was, was, you know, the, the Yankees came through the farm at the end of the war and, you know, just hearing those stories and, so you always always came at American history from a Southern perspective. And once I got into the tour business, I realized that the Southern story is a, is a poorly told story. It is not understood. And people have all these preconceptions, especially if you're you know from the Northeast of the far West, they come in with a bias. And so part of my reason for being is to, reshape that a little bit i get tell the tale hit them with facts and just kind of open their eyes a little bit and hopefully make them feel a little bit different about the south and you know about the evolution of, of america it's a great place to try to get into all that and it's a complicated story and so the art is taking all this history and really powerful history and trying to break it down into two hours and make it digestible. You get all types on the tour. That's the thing. And I'm allowed to take up to 20 people. And the good news is when it's a walk, pretty much everybody on the tour wants to be there. When you're doing a carriage tour or a bus tour, you get all types. You know, you get people that are there just because the kids want to go on a buggy ride. You get elderly people that can't walk. You get, people from every socioeconomic strata walking tour. There's a filter there and the people that are on my tour are generally more sophisticated and are there because they want to be there and they have a thirst for knowledge, but they are coming from distant places. And a lot of folks don't know anything about Charleston, about South Carolina. A lot of folks don't know anything about the Southern States. And so you have to assume that no one knows anything and make it so that they can understand and appreciate, but you also have to make it sophisticated and detailed enough so that the guy that teaches history at the college level gets something out of it too. So that's the balance and every day is different. Yeah. I, so I have a couple questions that, that I don't know which one to ask first. I'll, I'll just go with uh, one of them. You have a, a lot of knowledge about the Southeast over the last 250 years. Uh, uh, based on me listening to your podcast, that podcast a couple of times, um, based on a lot of reading I've done about what you do uh, and the article uh, that came out today. Um, how did you come by that knowledge? Was it mostly through reading? Was it talking to other folks uh, or was it some other? 
venue? Well, it's 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 you know it's it's a work in progress. You never stop learning. And when I first became a tour guide, you had to pass a test. And for most of of the tourism history of the city, there's been a mandatory test for guides. Once again, you know, the world has changed and seven years ago, three guides failed the test and sued the city. And so you no longer have to be licensed, which is just ridiculous. It's outrageous, but the test is as challenging as any test I ever took in college. Mm. It's hundreds of years of, of history and a thousand buildings that you could potentially be tested on names, dates, architectural periods, who built it, what happened there, and just any number of different types of facts about the city down to the plants, the plants that are indigenous. And so it's a massive amount of rote memorization. The historic manual for the guides in the city it is 750 pages long. And you can potentially be tested on anything in that manual. And it has a really high failure rate. When I took the test the first time in January of 1996, it was offered quarterly. And the, that quarter, 26 people took it and only 11 people passed the test. Wow. So it's got over a 50% failure rate. And that is understood. And a lot of people never pass it. They'll take it three or four times and just fail it because it's just so much. So that's your baseline. But what you very quickly realize when you're giving tours is the average tourist doesn't give a rip about the majority of the information that's in that manual. The names and dates provide a framework and context, but that's not what people want to know about. They want human interest stories. They want to understand how history relates to them. And so they're having lived here a long time and they're, there are a lot of really interesting people that have lived here for centuries, just like in Virginia, right? You know, we grew up in Richmond and so many of our friends, their families have been there for centuries. Yeah. And the stories of the families are so special, so interesting. And these are incredibly influential people. Like, you know, where I go to church, St. Phillips, we've got a signer of the Declaration of Independence. His family still goes to church there. Signer of the Constitution. His family still goes to church there. Christopher Gadsden, the Gadsden flag. Chris Gadsden is my friend. His grandson is my contemporary, Chris Gadsden. You know, it, it, all these people are still here. Their families are still here. And so it's just the most fascinating place. And so over time with experience, you just develop this archive of information and these stories, these anecdotes. People want anecdotes, you know, they want to hear. From, they want, and, and that's the other thing that, that's really important to tourists. Sophisticated tourists want to feel, I call it the Wizard of Oz effect. They want to feel like they get a peek behind the curtain. Sophisticated tourists know that touristy cities have a revved up tourism industry. And there's a forward facing image of every great city that's not exactly the whole story. And so sophisticated tourists like to come in and start digging and they want to get behind that curtain and figure out what's really going on. Tell me what, tell me what you really think about this and that, and why did this really happen? 
And so that's part of the fun and being able to, you know, unpack some of that stuff for people on a daily basis. Yeah. What's cool for you is uh, you end up, no tour is the same for you, right? No, you know, half of the information probably needs to be the same on every tour because you have to provide certain fundamental facts, you know, a framework for people. But every tour is different because the personalities of the groups are different. Uh, I can change my route, which I do daily because what you're looking at often drives the conversation. You run into people all the time. That's one of the coolest things about giving tours is downtown is really kind of villagey. If you live downtown, which I do, and you work and you go to church and your kids go to school downtown, you know, everybody sort of knows everybody and you know them in various ways. And so on the average tour, I would probably have at least 10 people stop me and say, Hey, or just walk by a wave. Hey, Tommy. And, or they'll actually stop and they'll mess with you. And that's beautiful. <laughs> that when they, when they screw with you and, and people love it, tourists absolutely love it because they feel like they're with somebody that's part of the community. And it is, I would say anecdotal, but I do feel like people today long for a sense of community. Wow. Most big cities, people live these isolated and detached lives and they're commuting a lot and they don't have engagements like people that are of our parents' generations and older would have had. And there, you know, the community of Charleston is very layered and, I know people in a lot of different ways and that reveals itself on the daily on tour and people are like, Oh my gosh, this place is incredible. I've never seen anything like this place. And you can just tell they long for it. They, they, that's what's missing that sense of community. And, and, you know, I, we, I do talk about this some on tour. We just live, we live so far from where we work and they were so spread out now, but it used to be that people had really compact lives and the bulk of your existence would be in a pretty tight radius. And because you're physically planted in one location, everything about your life, if it is in one location, makes that, little world that center of the universe more important you know everything about your day impacts your life whereas if you were a commuter you drive an hour to go to work and then you you know, pack up shop and you get the hell out of there and you're racing through traffic to get home so you can give your kids a kiss on the cheek before they go to bed and so you and you're burned out and the conditions are so busy that it forces you to be aggressive and it's just this rising level of angst and tension and people feel detached. Anyway, there's a sense of community here that we have that, that pe most people don't and it blows folks away. They love it so much. You know, the other thing that impacts people is the weather that every day is different. And the weather is one of those interesting things that, that that's, I've, always theorized too that that's one of the rhythms of life that's disappeared because you know historically 90 percent of every family of you know all communities were farmers mm. and so when you're a farmer 
and you're tied to the land and your life is based on seasons and you're at the mercy of the weather and and that rhythm is embedded in your daily existence and you know it just it creates it creates a perspective towards the world that we you can't control it you know that there's you can't control your life and it maybe it probably makes you a little more faithful and and just thankful when when things are good you you tend to appreciate them more and when when they're bad you know you have to work hard to overcome it and so those rhythms and those those seasons of life have disappeared a little bit because we're so detached from farm life yeah i do think that that's missing a little bit too and so the weather impacts me on a daily basis and and i actually like it when it rains you know it's a slice of life and it changes the tour it makes me behave a little bit differently and it's just it's just it changes your lens a little bit out of the 10 people that on average stop and and talk to you or mess with you how many of them refer to you as tommy salami <laughs> that'll come up about once a week you know <laughs> You know, he's a rock star. <laughs> you need to get him to sing for you. <laughs> oh, man. They're like, really? You're, you're, you're a singer? Well, in a past life, yes, man. Will you sing for us? Oh, that'll be extra, man. <laughs> so I, I mentioned two questions earlier. I didn't know which one to ask first. The second one is, I imagine when you get folks from the Northeast or from out West or even from other Southern states, they don't know the history of the South. And uh, it's really been boiled. And, and you're more eloquent about this than I am. So I'll, I'll, I'll be quick. Uh, it, they, it's really boiled down to the South was for slavery. Slavery is evil. So anybody that has Southern heritage must be evil by uh, relationship or, or proxy. And I, I think, we do a horrible job as a culture and a society of allowing that very shallow belief to, to um, be taken over by the masses. I think the masses actually believe that and they don't want to go beyond that. I agree. And that's one of my reasons for being, it is why I have a job. It's cathartic for me as a multi-generational Southerner from the capital of Confederacy to be on point and explaining this stuff and dispelling those myths. And, you know, just as an example, I mean, there's so many examples, but less than 10% of white families in the South own slaves. Now, that's the great misconception. People assume that the average white guy in the South was a slave owner. It's not close. Over 90% never own slaves. It's a function of wealth. And what's, you know, very curious is, you know, I always tell people that we all understand that slavery is immoral. No one would ever argue otherwise, but it is contextual. And that's what history is. It's about context. And our context is incredibly different than what it was 200 years ago. The immorality of slavery was just lost on people. It was not this burning top of mind morality play that we think that it should have been. Only 2% of Northern people were abolitionists in 1840. So your mainstream Northerner is not lathered up about that issue. The best example for me is downtown Charleston had in 1840, 
had 30,000 people that were black and 15,000 people that were white. So for most of our history, downtown Charleston was two to one black over white. And that was about a three square mile area in 1840. Well, 20% of our black population was free. So out of 30,000 people that are black downtown, 24,000 are enslaved and 6,000 are free. So we actually had more free blacks also known as free people of color in the city than any other American city for the longest time. And 38% of our free black households were slave owning households. So Mm -hmm. the free blacks of downtown Charleston owned slaves at about four times the rate of the average white guy across the South. And I would just say it's nothing more than the brokenness of the human condition. We are wired to seek advantage. We come out of the womb, putting ourselves first and controlling land and labor is the story of human history. It's almost impossible to name a great civilization that's not built on forced labor of some type. And so the last 200 years, our conscience has developed on that front. But it's the West that developed the conscience. It's the Judeo-Christian tradition that abolished slavery. And, you know, people would seem to think that it's all our fault when it's not. It's an inherited perspective that dominates pretty much all cultures. And so what I think, and, you know, this is me being sort of cynical and opinionated, but I, I consider it to be the Saul Alinsky playbook rules for radicals. If you want big government and a nanny state, and if you want the tyranny of distance, you have to have class warfare and racial tension. If you want to sell big government and entitlement programs, and you you want, you got to have victims. And so victimhood is the economy now. And we have been selling that for a long, long time. And so people, it's not their fault. The education system is full of Marxists and people that are have a very different agenda than you and I. And we, I think, are naive to that. And we have had our head in the sand for a long time. And it's coming to bear right now. We are watching it right now with all this Antifa stuff and the BLM stuff and basically this license to steal and loot and and, for the sake of expressing oneself and, and setting, you know, and writing wrongs. I mean, it's, it's all ridiculous. It's, 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 it's been going on for a long time and these, these chickens are coming to roost right now. Yeah, it's a weird time. I, I think the the majority of people are common sense. They 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 abhor the notion of playing the victim for more than a, a few minutes. Uh, they uh, believe in individual responsibility, but community is important. I think there are more of us uh, like that than there are these victims who can't wait to tell you how the world has wronged them, and um, we need to do something for them because they've been wrong. Uh, and and well, it's it's entirely manufactured or almost entirely manufactured. I, I agree. I do think that most people are, would lean towards my position on this. 
But also, I do think that most people are afraid to express themselves. No, people don't like rocking the boat. And they just want to keep their head down and stay out of trouble. And that complacency is why we find ourselves in trouble. And, and I think that the leftists have had a very aggressive campaign. And it's been going on for decades. And so I think what I fight on, you know, what I, what I run into is you have these people with these preconceived, preconceived notions that the South is evil and that, you know, we fought the war to free the slaves and you were wrong and we were right. The North did not invade us to free our slaves. The North invaded us to preserve the Union. It's the only thing that Lincoln ran on. And there's no doubt that slaves were freed as a result of the war. You know, it's very important. Slaves are freed. Emancipation is a byproduct of the war, but they did not invade us to free our slaves. It's a really important distinction. Lincoln only ran on one plank, preservation of the Union. And the question is, why are they so hell-bent on preserving the Union? Well, I would mean, you know, I'm a firm believer in follow the money, honey. And, you know, the Southern states were supplying 78% of the federal budget in 1860. When we secede from the Union, they're not going to let us go. Yeah. They're not about to let us go. And anyway, not to get into the weeds on that, but it's, it's you know, that's what you fight. And, and again, everybody understands that slavery is wrong, but 200 years ago, it's not how we perceive it for most people. And that doesn't make it right. It just is what it is. Yeah. And I think the problem is we now try to hold people that came before us to a set of standards that they did not know existed. And so it's illogical to apply our mores on those that came before us. The human condition is a flawed condition. We are all deeply flawed. And if you want to pick any of us apart, you can. But we're all capable of doing great things, too. You know, when you start canceling George Washington, I've got a real problem with that. I do, too. It's ridiculous. <laughs> Completely ridiculous. All right. So uh, that podcast, Stories Across America, I, I told you I listened to it twice. You were really good on it. Uh, some of the information you were sharing and the context behind the facts uh, was great to listen to. One thing that I would love for you to expand upon after the union had effectively planted themselves here for 14 years or so after the civil war ended, Charleston was left to its own devices. There was not going to be help from the federal government. The state government, like a lot of state governments across the South was, they were in shambles. Um, and you mentioned essentially a century of no, uh, I, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, no real positive uh, development in general and certainly not economic development. What were those hundred years like for people living in uh, Charleston? And by the way, your human scale description uh, is just, it's poetry, man. I, I love listening to that. Oh, well, thank you. So at the end of the war, this, the South was defeated and it was a thorough, thorough defeat. Charleston, you could argue suffered as much as any place um, just to help paint the picture. Downtown Charleston's suffered the great fire of 1861. So the first winter of the war, we actually had our very worst disaster of all time. It was a war related fire, but it was an accidental fire and it burned about 2000 structures. And mm. so a huge swath of the city was gutted the first year 
And then in 1863, the city was bombarded for 19 months, 1863 to 1865. And that is the second longest artillery siege in history after Leningrad. And that was 900 days. So by the end of the war, the city is in physical ruin. And they declared back taxes were owed for four years of fighting, which is essentially a form of reparations. And so that's why there are a lot of old Charleston people, but basically nobody owns their original homes. There are only five families in downtown Charleston that own the houses they owned in 1860 because it was almost impossible to come back in after the war and get your downtown house back. We were occupied for 14 years. It was a 6,000 man federal occupying force, martial law. I think, you know, the, one of the, the spicier points is there was no democracy in the state for 11 years. If you were white and from South Carolina, you could not vote. You couldn't hold office from 1865 to 1876. And so for those 11 years, only emancipated slaves and Northern people got to vote and hold office in South Carolina. Wow. And in 1876, a Confederate general named Wade Hampton, he later become governor. He rallied old soldiers, old Confederates, and they strong on the polling places across South Carolina. And that's what allowed whites to return to the polls in 1876 for the first time. But then they in turn suppressed the black vote, which is Jim Crow. So I just say hate begets hate. It was just awful. There was hate flowing in all directions. And it's a giant pile of rubble. You know, emotionally, 20% of the men in the city were killed. Slaves are emancipated, which was a huge cog in the economy. And so you have bankruptcies left and right. And then you have physical ruin. It, it, you know, Sherman burned the middle of South Carolina. He cut a fire about 60 miles wide through the center of the state. So top to bottom, it's a disaster. But I would still say it, it's a stratified pile of rubble. So the whole society collapses. But emancipated slaves are still at the bottom and the old ruling elite are still on top of the pile, but they've lost everything and they are so bitter and it's it's bad and they're full of spite and retaliatory measures. I've always argued that what happened in the South after the war with Reconstruction and Jim Crow and the KKK, I think it's easily argued that that's more embarrassing than what happened before the war because the plantation culture and the system of slavery that evolved here was really a continuation of old world sort of patriarchal feudalism. It's just a repackaging of what had come from the old world. But what happens after the war was much more sinister. I think you could argue. And it was, it was a lot of anger. It's very similar to what happened in Germany after world war one, you know, the Treaty of Versailles gutted Germany and it left this vacuum and it there was inflation and unemployment and there was so much anger. And in that sort of cesspool of bitterness, you get the Nazi party and Adolf Hitler. So I think there's strong, strong parallels to what happened in the post-war South to what happened in post-war one Germany. And so the lesson is when you defeat an enemy, the end game is not to continue having enemies. You want allies in the future. So you get the Marshall Plan, World War II. You rebuild Germany, you rebuild Japan. And, you know, we've done the same thing in the Gulf Wars. We've tried our best to try to heal and build and provide systems and infrastructure that has long-term residual value. But that's sort of a more modern concept. And the South was definitely not the beneficiary of that. 
And so basically this place gets knocked unconscious in 1865 and it's left for dead for the next hundred years. And there was, there were moments of happiness for sure. It's not like it's all bleak. And as a tour guide, you, you paint with broad strokes, but generally speaking, it was rough. Um, the old saying too poor to paint, too proud to whitewash. I've said that the growth and the Renaissance that we find ourselves in now is sort of incremental. You, you look at World War II, there was a massive Navy base buildup here in Charleston, the shipyard. They added tens of thousands of jobs at the Navy base for World War II. And then air conditioning, that is a total game changer. You cannot overstate the impact of air conditioning on the lives of Southern people. And then you get the civil rights movement. And I think that as, as that side improves, I think you get more comfort with the region, more outside investment, and then you get the Eisenhower Highway package. That's so important. You know, if you look at the growth corridors of the South, all those roads come to fruition in the 1960s and 1970s. And where you see growth in the South, it's largely tied to those pieces of infrastructure. For Charleston, it's in the South Carolina coast, it's I-95. I've always argued that the completion of the highway in 1974 is what woke us up. So tourism mm -hmm. takes over as the number one sector of the coastal economy in the mid seventies. You know, I like to you know, joke beaches, golf and repotted Yankees. So Myrtle <laughs> beach, Charleston and Hilton head. Yeah. Everything changes 50 years ago. And then the real sleepers, hurricane Hugo in 1989, that laid the city open. And up until then you got a bunch of old families, broke aristocrats, deferring maintenance forever. And then they get insurance by the billions and mm. downtown gets upgraded to modern standards. You know, just as an example, my 1987 apartment at the college of Charleston, I lived in one floor of a 200 year old mansion and it was beautiful. I had 14 foot ceilings, huge moldings. The heart pine floors were 15 inch wide planks that basically ran from the front of the house to the back of the house. They just milled an old long leaf pine, you know, virgin timber, but we had no air conditioning. So every morning, summer of 1987, I woke up in a puddle of sweat, mm. knob and tube wiring, all the windows painted shut, wood rot, little formica kitchen set from Sears is probably stuffed, you know, into one corner of this beautiful room in 1965, you know, it's just tired, worn out. And what Hugo does is it fixes all that. It allows people to bring their properties up to modern standards. And so I've always argued we're more beautiful and more accurate architecture because of Hurricane Hugo funding than any other single event. And that's, 33 years ago. And then since then, you just have this onslaught of migrating people. But in particular, you think Northern people who are aging out baby boomers and retirees, you know, and so you know, the theme is their blood thins as they age and they want warmer weather. They want lower taxes. They're tired of pulling the wagon. They want pace. They just want to relax and have some fun. And then the big thing now, and it's most noticeable is law and order. So mm -hmm. COVID has taught people that they can work remotely and you don't have to live in big cities anymore. And I kind of have my finger on the pulse because I talk to people from all over the world 
every day. I get people from all the major U.S. metros and every city is under attack. Lawless people are taking over the cities and reasonable, reasonable people are done. They're exhausted and they don't want to raise their families in those environments. And so we still have some semblance of law and order in downtown Charleston. And people are, you know, they come in and it's just, it's just a tonic. It's so refreshing. And we've been getting 50 people a day moving to our metro area. That's really like getting 100 a day because we're on the ocean and we can only grow in a half a circle. Yeah. And that's backed off a little bit, but we're in a 50-year renaissance. And the last three years have been extraordinary. Yeah, uh, Tommy, that I, I could listen to you talk about this all day. Um, we, we're at, at an hour at 12. I'm going to keep you maybe for another 10, 15 minutes if that's okay. That's great. Um, the, so I went on a ghost tour. Uh, I realized you were down there doing your tour thing probably a little too late in the week for me to rally uh, everybody we had down there. We'd already scheduled this ghost tour, and uh, we went, and I cannot remember the name of the church, but the steeple, it's the tallest structure in Charleston. And uh, maybe Matthews. I'm wrong. Yeah. St. Matthew's Lutheran Church. That's the yeah. tallest steeple in downtown Charleston. Now, I mean, think about that. And you, you've been in Charleston for 38 years, but for somebody who doesn't live there, and I remember you saying in 1790, the biggest four cities, and I don't remember how you uh, define biggest, and you may not have said Population. Biggest, population. Uh, three northern cities, Philly, New York, and Boston, and then Charleston was in the top four. Uh, how do you go from 1790 Charleston to the tallest building in 2023 Charleston is a church? I mean, it's it's unbelievable. It, it is unbelievable. And so that's that's what makes it so glorious. All that suffering that this place went through for 100 years meant that there was no money for urban renewal. And so your healthy cities were inclined to tear down old things in the name of progress and Charleston couldn't do it. There was no economic justification. And so when we start to wake up around World War II, we've got more old buildings than any city in this country, roughly about 100 from before 1776 and 1,000 from before 1861 on a five-mile peninsula. Mm. And they're hurting They've been neglected, generations of deferred maintenance, but at least they're still standing and they're salvageable. So as the money starts to flow over the last 50 years, the preservation laws and the zoning laws, they've been on the books for 100 years now. The, the laws are written well before the economy turned. And let me just digress for a second. That's really important. Private property rights are sacred rights in the United States of America. And that's because our legal system is an offshoot of the British common law system, which is 100 years old. And private property is fiercely defended in the British Empire historically. And so we inherit that lens. If you own real estate, you fully expect to get the highest and best use of the land. And if you acquire something and then after the fact, the government comes in and starts to write laws that encumber that property and diminish its potential and value, you as a private citizen will sue. And so it's been almost impossible for healthy cities to write meaningful laws to manage their streetscapes because mm -hmm. of private property defense. 
And the only reason our laws are so good and so thorough is they were written a hundred years ago, more than a generation before we started to wake wake up economically. And so people here were not paying attention to the fact that their properties were being encumbered. Mm. So preservation protects the old stuff. It says if a building is 75, you can't tear it down. You can't corrupt the facade. Zoning focuses on the new stuff, height. That's why church steeples dominate the skyline. There's a four-story threshold through much of the city. And then also something like an egress or off-street parking spaces. How does that new development impact flow and quality of life? And so both preservation and zoning laws have been on the books for a long time. And it gave the city a head start. And so people come here and the consistency, the thoroughness, it, the continuity is unbelievable. And it's the highest order of preservation by neglect in the United States. Yeah, I can't think of anything like it. There's nothing like it. I had a guy, I get all sorts of Europeans and the Europeans love Charleston. They're like, this is the most European of the American cities. And it's a walking city and neighbors know each other. It's just in there's little cafes and charming shops and very eclectic block after block is different. One European one time made the most interesting observation. He said, you are the most European of the American cities in Europe. We put our possessions in our backyards in America. You put yours in your front yards. Charleston's more like Europe. I was like, man, that's pretty heavy. That's pretty cool. Yeah. It's, right, quiet so money. it's quiet money. Sorry. It's old money. It's old families. Yeah, yeah. You know, they don't necessarily, you know, they're running on fumes. You know, the broke aristocrats, incredible legacies, incredible family trees. But up until about 50 years ago, they didn't have anything in their bank accounts. And now because real estate values have gone up 45 times since the interstate was finished, locals have cashed out and there has been a renaissance of local wealth, but forever, you know, they were just running on fumes. They're broke. Yeah. All right. Uh, so I was down there a couple of weeks ago and I went through the market on it's on market street, right? That, that long, that long walk of, of vendors that are there. Well, yes, the market is a, is a yeah, city market and it's, it's full of vendors and artisans and gift shops. It's, it's the center of tourism. Why are those grass baskets? Is, is it salt grass or some sort of grass? Oh, sweet grass. Yeah, sweet grass. Why are they so expensive, Tommy? Uh, because they get paid by the hour and it can take days to make a basket. So if you're paying $300 for a basket that's about 15 inches across, it took that guy days to make. Wow. So if you break it down to an hourly wage, he might be making you know, 10 to 15 bucks an hour. That's good to know. I, 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 they're gorgeous. They're absolutely gorgeous. And they're everywhere. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, it's a tradition that goes back to West Africa. So in the rice culture, which was the great culture here in the 1700s and, and beyond, but the wealth of the colonial period is built on rice cultivation. Africans taught the Europeans how to grow rice here. And they used baskets that had utility. You can use a basket for anything, but it was particularly you know, important in, in the rice culture for winnowing rice. And you have families that maintain the tradition. So the cool thing is you got about two dozen 
Charleston families that have been maintaining this trade that goes back to the time of slavery. So you're not just deciding you want to weave a basket. You were going to be born into a family that's been maintaining that tradition. They last a really long time. Sweetgrass is a grass that grows right on the edge of the marsh where the marsh kind of comes up into the highland. So it's right on the fringe of high and low ground. And that's the main component. And then they use palmetto fronds as the binder. You will also see pine straw and bulrush in the baskets. So those are the four, four materials. So, so I, I appreciate the history there and, uh, and the effort it, put, it takes to put those baskets in, yeah, ten to fifteen dollars an hour, three hundred dollar basket uh, with that history is is not. Too yeah, much. it's if they're artisans and they're and they're very proud of their craft, and it's a nice slice of Charleston culture. It's unique to us. All right, you mentioned your family's farm was taken uh, by the Union or federal government. Um, where was the farm? Well, it wasn't taken, but they they Destroyed came through it. in eighteen sixty five, and it was um. East, Eastern King and Queen County, right? You go down to Tappahannock and hang a right and near the Essex County line. Okay. Right on, on the Dragon Swamp, and the Dragon Swamp becomes the Pianke Tank River. Oh, wow. Okay. There's another Deltaville. Yeah. 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 There's a, there's a racetrack not far from there, too, off 17, I think. You know, I haven't been back in so long. I don't know. I was going to say it was probably built after you went to College of Charleston. All right, and then I'm I, I'm going to ask you where you're from, and then I'm going to ask you where your children are from. So where are you from? So I'm from Richmond, Virginia, and that's that's I, I know where you're going. My that's that's one of the little giveaways when you ask a Southerner where they're from. It's where their people are. It's where they're born and raised, and you ask somebody from another part of the country where they're from. It tends to be where they live right now. And so because Southern culture is less uh, fluid, you know, we're an intransient population, old farming families sort of frozen in time, literally and figuratively rooted to the earth without new people coming in where your people are is a big part of what defines you. And so people ask me, where are you from? I'm from Richmond. Well, well, how long have you lived here? Uh, I lived here 38 years. Uh, oh, you're a Charlestonian now. I was like, no, I'm actually not. It, uh, but it's okay. I don't care. It's, uh, it, I wouldn't feel honest to say I'm from Charleston. I'm a Richmonder that lives in Charleston. So it just boils down to where you're from and where you live are two very different things. In Northern culture, people do tend to be more newly arrived and they move a lot more. I think they're busier and they change jobs a lot historically. And it's all, that's all changing, right? That's a generalization. But, but, you know, the joke is you ask somebody in Northern where they're from, I'm from Raleigh, North Carolina. <laughs> <laughs> you might live there. <laughs> all right. So, so where are your kids from, Tommy? My kids are from Charleston. Yeah, so they were born and raised yeah. in Charleston. And it's, I think it's fair to say that they're from here. Yeah. I think it's fair to say that as well. Um, yeah. It's, Funny, the uh, I was in Middlesex County. I was, I was looking at a little bit of property, a little cottage on it. And the real estate developer, I said, how long have you lived here? And he said, oh, about, I think he said 53, 54 years. I'm like, well, how old are you? He goes, I'm 58. I said, well, you've been here since you were a little kid. You're from here. And he goes, don't tell the older folks that I'm from here because they don't they don't buy it. I, I had to be born here to be from here for them. 
And I said, well, uh, that seems ridiculous. He goes, man, I was at a funeral the other day. The guy who passed away was born somewhere else. Family moved here when he was one, and they didn't consider him from there either. <laughs> right, right. No doubt about it. No doubt about it. And I think, you know, and I think that's a Southern thing, but I think it's also particularly a Virginia thing and a South Carolina thing. So during the colonial period, Virginia and South Carolina were considered the aristocratic pinnacles of the South. You know, North Carolina's nickname was the Valley of Humility between the Twin Peaks of Conceit. Mm. That's an old name for North Carolina, colonial name. And so Virginia, South Carolina had this aristocratic thing going on. And people were very in tune and proud of their legacies and tended to be maybe more aspirational. Yeah. And, and, and fierce, fiercely proud of their fiercely area. proud. You know, growing up in Virginia, we know that was the center of the universe. And then I moved here and I realized, well, Charleston is the center of its universe. There's an old joke. You know, Charleston is a peninsula city bounded by two rivers, the Ashley and the Cooper. And the confluence of the Ashley and Cooper rivers form the Atlantic Ocean. Mm. That's mm. an old Charleston saying. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. All right, I'm going to ask you a question completely out of left field, but it's meant to be a little more revealing about who you are. Even though you've been fairly revealing to include uh, you, you giving a full frontal nudity to a few hundred people on stage. Um, you're a talk show host for one day, one night only. It's your talk show. You get to decide who your guests will be. They can be alive or dead. Uh, they can be friends of yours, family members, famous, not famous. Um, you could, your show can be thought provoking. It can be meant uh, for entertainment. It can be whatever you want it to be. Uh, the only restrictions are you're limited to one male guest, one female guest, uh, a musical act. Uh, and if you like stand up comedy, you can have a comedian on. Oh, Lord, you're putting me on the spot. <laughs> I can't say I've ever thought about that. Why, why would you? It's a, it's a weird question. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I, I think the more I know about Winston Churchill, I think that guy impresses me a lot. Just just fierce. And he, he defeated the Nazis, you know. Without him, the world would be a very different place. And he was steadfast. And I have a lot of respect for him. So he strikes me as somebody that would be just incredibly interesting. And on the female side, probably Pamela Anderson. All right. No, I'm being funny. <laughs> no, no, hey, whatever. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, no, that was just to make you laugh. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I tuned in, Tommy, for that. Um, you know, I had the pleasure of taking on tour, and it's probably the highlight of my career is I took Sandra Day O'Connor on tour. What? Yeah, so she did a private tour of downtown Charleston. I was her guide. And you talk about a badass. That's the most intense tour I've ever given. She was grilling me, taking oh, notes, taking notes the entire tour. Oh my challenging God. me on points that I was making. And I had an attorney in the back of the Secret Service car with me who had invited me to to give this talk to the justice. And and sh this woman was in the governor's administration uh, as for Nikki Haley. And she's an old friend of mine. And so we were in the back of this limo 
And Sandra Day O'Connor is pounding me with questions. And I'm answering every question she asks. And at first she goes, I cannot accept that answer. <laughs> and, and she goes, I need more information, young man. Keep going. <laughs> Keep going. And so, I mean, just, it's a serious grilling. Oh, and at the end of the at the end of my response, I give her everything I got, and she goes, "Good job, I accept your answer." And, and my my friend is on the other side of me, this attorney, and she's just frogging me in the leg, going. And at the end of the tour, she goes, "That was the the coolest thing I've ever seen in my life." <laughs> How old were you for that? I was about fifteen years ago. Wow. Um, but I just, I, and that, and I think, you know, she's cut from similar cloth as Winston Churchill. She's, you know, this incredible woman who her mind is so sharp and she doesn't play around, you know, she's serious and she's friendly and she had a twinkle in her eye, but she wanted to get to the heart of the matter. And this is supposed to be just some sort of fun little two hour cruise through downtown Charleston. She took pages of notes. Mm. She, she was listening to everything I had to say and she was writing as fast as she could. I was just stunned by her level of commitment. She made you a better tour guide that day. I imagine you did. All right. So she's your female. That's my female. All right. Who's your musical act? Um, Velvet Underground. Okay. I love Lou Reed and the Velvet Underground. That, that they write tight little pop songs. You know, he was one of those guys too that hated jam bands. He's got some great quotes on that. And you know, I, I heard him. I heard a quote on him the other say talking about that the other day. And he's dead, but he was just making fun of these musicians who do all these virtuoso leads in the middle of a song. It's like, who are you trying to impress? <laughs> you know, it's rock and roll. Just keep it simple make the point and get the hell off the stage. Do you remember when we were, I might not even been a teenager. You might've barely been a teenager. And it may have just been in my hometown, but I, I suspect that Lou Reed's name was being spray painted on the side of buildings in a lot of places. It was certainly happening in my hometown. Do you remember that? I don't, I don't remember that. Yeah. That, that, that became a thing. It might be, Hell, it could have been one one random kid that just hit up ten buildings in in my small town. But well, yeah, and that was Ashland, right? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll tell you what, a little funny. So Jay Tobler and a couple other guys from St. Christopher's, we went down to the Capitol, Thomas Jefferson's Capitol in downtown Richmond, and we put anarchy T-shirts on the statues and on the Capitol grounds. <laughs> <laughs> the cops came, they chased us. We had a foot race. I had to hide behind a dumpster in downtown Richmond. The cops are searching high and low for us. It was one of my is, prouder moments. Is that the origin of Antifa? <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> we didn't we didn't create any permanent damage. We were just putting anarchy t-shirts on statues of our founding father. So sounds pretty harmless to me. Yeah. Yeah. Uh comedian for your talk show or not not a comedian kind of guy? Rodney Dangerfield. Yeah. God, he, that's he, funny. And, and he didn't get big until he was around our age. Yeah. yeah. He, he makes me laugh. Yeah, he, he was definitely a funny dude. All right, cool. Let, let's end with uh, you talking about uh, just telling us a little bit more about your wife and then tell, tell me about your kids. Yeah, so my wife, Travis Bowles, she's from Athens, Georgia. She went to the college, and my sister and Travis were 
they're three years younger and they were best friends in their sorority. And my sister actually introduced us. Oh, nice. Our first date was set up by my sister. It was a tri-delt, get your sister a mixer, get your sister a Mr. Mixer. <laughs> so I I'm, I'm, uh, was my wife's blind date at a club downtown. And, uh, and uh, we locked lips that night and then uh, it was game on. I was in love. I mean, I, I you know, I, I was just relentless in my pursuit of her. And um, I, I just knew she was the one pretty much from day one. And it kind of, it just, it was just, I was single-mindedly determined to land her and, and make her my wife. And it tightened me up, you know, I just, just sort of, I bucked up at that point. It was time. I'd had a big time and I, I did no regrets. Right. You know, I'd, I'd lived a large life and gotten it out of my system and I was ready to settle down and have a family and it, it all worked out. And there's no doubt that she keeps me on the, you know, between the white lines. She is keeping me straight and I need her. I, if not for her, there's no telling I'll be in a ditch somewhere. Mm. And we have three kids. I've got 25, 22, 20 year old boy, girl, boy. And they're doing well. They're good kids. They, they're right. going to, you know, they seem to be good citizens. Their heads are screwed on. Nice. They, they screw up, but you know, that's life. They all, they all do. We certainly did when we were their ages. Yeah. Yeah. So we got, a, I got a good gig. You know, I got a simple life. I'm very thankful. I, I just wake up every morning. I, I get to give a tour every day to to, to new people. To, I get to meet new people every morning at eleven o'clock. I never know what awaits me. Every day is different. It's organic. I, I do. That's one of the things I've made an effort to keep the tour organic. Just talk about anything. Nothing sacred. You can talk about anything. You cannot hurt my feelings. And it's uh, based on how we've talked about uh, what you do these days. It sounds like it's very energizing for you, too. It's the highlight of my day, you know, and I, I, I I've been saying this lately and it's kind of cheesy. But I have never had a bad day at work. Never one time in 28 years. I've had some weird tours. I've had some cranky tourists, but not really. You know, most people are really nice. They're there to have a good time. I catch people at their best. They're on vacation. They want to learn. Yeah. What, what a beautiful city. You know, it's just, and it's an uplifting experience. It's, I don't know. I don't want to sound too preachy, but it's, it's, it is almost sort of a, a ministry and that, you know, you get to lead people through a city that's unlike where they're from and it's something that they long for. And it, it's just, it's, it, it's uplifting for people. And, and, and it's on the daily that they feel that, you know, you get those types of comments. They're like, this place is unbelievable. I had the best time. Thank you so much. This, this city resonates with me. This city makes me feel different. So anyway, it's just, I'm so fortunate to be able to just, do that every day. And anyway. well, Tom, I, I, as you were talking, I was reminded of uh, you describing the human scale. Can, can you just give us a couple minutes on uh, what that means as it relates to Charleston and, and that time? Frame? Sure. So forever, we as humans lived in very predictable existences. We, our buildings were going to be four stories or less with very few exceptions because all buildings we're going to be made of brick, wood, or stone, and they have you know, similar load potentials. So wood, brick, and stone can get you to four stories. And then in the late 1800s, 
the I-beam was invented, the elevator was invented, and pumps were invented. And so structures could be much, much larger. The pumps are important because they allow you to have restrooms up in the sky. So the first skyscraper in the world was invented in Chicago, Illinois in 1880. And as soon as that technology is unleashed, your healthy cities go vertical. And so old four-story streetscapes were replaced with 20, 50, 100-story streetscapes. And people started living further and further from where they worked. It used to be when you had what they call the human scale, that four-story th threshold, you would live, worship, work, go to school, socialize, shop in a one to two mile radius. Almost everything about your existence would be in one place. And so as a citizen, you could pour yourself into that one piece of turf because everything about your life was in one place. And it because it was your entire life, you were more committed to it and you felt compelled to invest yourself and big cities rip out the human scale, go vertical and people start living further and further and further away from their work. And the commutes got extraordinary. And so now millions and millions of people live over an hour from where they work and the commutes are horrendous and you have to be aggressive on the commute to stay competitive because you're just fighting through traffic and you, you're going to lose your place in line all the time. And you get to be anonymous. Nobody knows who you are along the commute. And so your aggression is can be unchecked. There's nothing that holds you accountable and you can get ruder and ruder and act like more and more of an arse throughout the day with no accountability. And so when you destroy the human scale, when you lose the four-story threshold, you erode civility and people become detached and burned out. And so that's the secret sauce of Charleston, maintaining a four-story threshold and a strong sense of community. And so you see the same people day after day, you know them in various ways, you have an unbelievable number of engagements on a 10 block wall. It's incredible how many people you see that, you know, and everybody's a comedian, you know, everybody's cracking, making jokes, having fun, messing with you. And it's lighthearted, this jovial banter that is uplifting. And so this, the human scale is, is the key to, the, to Charleston and, and the experience that it provides. And most, just about every Western community has lost it. Yeah. Look, you came to college of Charleston sight unseen and you never left Charleston after that. And a lot of what we've talked about tonight is uh, why you never left. It's why I never left. And I, you know, again, I'm just so fortunate. I jumped in with both feet, never, never went home, never looked back. Well, cool. Tommy, I appreciate you doing this, man. Uh, it was good to connect with you. I, I I'll reiterate. I knew of you uh, in high school I was a couple years behind you. You definitely did know of me other than maybe I was some big kid that was a couple years behind you. Uh, but it was well, also that's what happens, right? You know, you, you always know who the older boys are and not always who the boys are. I was terrified of the older boys always. You know, with they, good reason. Yeah, with good reason. I'll give you a noogie in the hall. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for doing this, Tommy. I appreciate it. Man. All right, Paul. It's great talking to you. Thank you for having me.
Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to wherever you listen to podcasts. We'd also really appreciate if you'd rate and review us. You can find us at scodopodcast.com. Thank you.